Welcome to Waterstone Church. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are excited for the path ahead of us and what God has called us to in 2021. Our mission is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim His kingdom and demonstrate His love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. As we begin the new year, we'll explore what this mission statement means to us and what part we can play in God's story. If you'd like to visit and attend in person, we'd love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. It's a big day. I am extremely nervous. If you've been around Waterstone, you get to know me at all, you know I'm not a big tattoo or jewelry guy. As my wife says, I'm too fond of saying, some cathedrals just don't need stained glass. But uh, I want to let you in on a little secret this morning, that when I preach or do a funeral, and only then, I wear jewelry. I, I wear a necklace that a friend gave me shortly after I graduated from seminary. And on the one side that I always have facing out is a cross. On the other side is an image of the Apostle Paul. And I have worn this for 35 years of ministry now, whenever I preach to say and to remember and to aspire that everything that I say comes from behind the cross. Everything is submitted. Everything is intended to honor Jesus Christ. And I feel like I'm just graduated from seminary and starting again because today's a big day. It changes the, the flow of the river at Waterstone. Now, as you'll see, not dramatically, we can never get away from our DNA of the kingdom. But yet, there'll be newness and freshness and some things new, some things different. I'm so excited about it. But I need your prayers right now just to even get through this. So, thank you. You know, it's been a long week. The political turmoil has brought another stretch of grim and disorienting days. And we even wrestled with whether we should proceed but the consensus was that we need to move forward and launch this new mission statement. Why? Because we are part of an eternal kingdom. And so we will persist and we will insist that we be on mission. You know, the purpose of a mission statement is to continually remind us week by week why we exist. And that has never been more necessary than today. So here it is. Stop blabbing, get to the point. The mission of Waterstone is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. You stew on that. 
You think on that. At the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to have your cameras ready, and I want you to take a picture of it at the end of the service. Take it home and uh, think about it. Today, what I want to do is talk about that first phrase, to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. And as this entire statement, uh, you'll see, is really rooted and grounded in the Scripture. And so that first phrase, to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ, comes from passages like the one we're going to look at this morning. It comes from 1 Peter. In a moment, I'm going to read it, but I want to give two brief comments on it before I do that. First, 1 Peter was written to, uh, by Peter, probably from Rome, to a early group of churches, the vintage churches, in modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. And these churches were facing at least uh, stigma for going public with their faith and proclaiming Jesus as Lord, at worst, persecution and life-threatening situations, very discordant times. And so what Peter's intention is with this letter of the entire First Peter, it's really a long extended mission statement. When we're in times, discordant times, what we need to know above all is why we exist. And that's what Peter gives to these churches, and that's what he continues to give to churches like Waterstone. The second thing I want to say before we read it is if you're online, we are so glad that you've joined us today, but, and even in our room this morning, there are no doubt people who are seeking to know more about Jesus, seeking to know more about what Christianity is all about. And I don't have to tell you that there are many opinions about that specifically about what churches are or should be. Lots of ideas. And so I think what's valuable is for those who are seeking to go back to an original voice like Peter when he writes to the vintage churches in order to scheme them and strengthen them. And then you can decide for yourself what a church is and what a church should be doing. So with those comments in mind, we go to the text here in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read if you please follow along. As you come to him, in the context of Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Now, as you've heard, the entire text, as Peter reminds them of their identity, it leans on a metaphor, a living stone. Now, you have to admit that that is a very daring and perhaps even odd metaphor, for we know that stones do not live. I mean, we get the metaphor of God being a rock, you know, he's immovable, immense, strong. God's a rock, we see that. But what does it mean that Jesus is a living stone? Uh, We all know stones do not live. Jan and I are avid hikers. We're always out, especially in the good weather, hiking. And one of our traditions when we hike, whether halfway or at the high point, is we build a, a cairn. All you who are outdoors in Colorado know what a cairn is. It's a stack of rocks, and you, you build it up, and we always use four stones for our four family members. We take time, and we read a psalm. By the way, the genius in this is trying to get them all to lean the right way. And you, uh, we pray. We read a psalm, and then we pray for our family. We pray for you. We pray for the world. But here's the thing. Never once when we've done this have we prayed to the rocks, and said, rocks, stones, would you help us? No, stones do not live. I mean, in that way, it would be like someone standing in front of a casket with a dead body inside and saying, get up. Who could do that? Ah, there it is. There he is. The metaphor carries the power of Jesus Christ to make dead things live. The living stone. You see, Jesus changes all the equations about what life and death mean in our existence. He is the one and the only one in recorded history to walk out of his own grave by his own power which means that he is, you know this, who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do. And that's why the church, being led by the living stone over 2,000 years, has marched forward and onward, carrying the news of a resurrected Jesus. It's empowered by him. One day, the church will be complete. He will return. And the new heaven and the new earth will come with him and brought down, and we will all live together in that new Jerusalem in face-to-face presence with God. But until then, the power that we have is Jesus' resurrection. He came back from the future into the middle of history to say, this is what's coming, resurrection and life. That's the power. It's power, and the metaphor also says history. What the idea of stone is, especially in the Old Testament, is kind of a messianic cipher or code. That's why Peter's quoting all these other verses to say, look, it's always been the plan. It's been always going this direction toward Jesus. Look at verse 6. You go back to some of these contexts of these quotes. It's rather interesting. For in Scripture, 
It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah 28. And if you go back and read Isaiah 28, what's going on there is Isaiah and God are talking, and God's saying to Isaiah, look, Assyria is coming. And Isaiah, what you need to tell the people is this, I am the one who raises up nations and takes them down, Assyria, Israel, and the United States of America. I am the one who makes empires rise and fall. Therefore, if you put your hope in horses and chariots, you will not make it. But if you put your hope in me above all, you will not be put to shame. Jesus reigns. Verse 7. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is taken from Psalm 118, which is part of a six-part psalm, 113 to 118, that are called the Egyptian Halal Psalms, or praise psalms. And they were uh, recited often by memory around Jewish tables when they remembered the Passover. They remembered how in Egypt, Israel faced sure death, but God rescued them. Like we've been singing the last few weeks, he turned seas into highways. He's the only one who can. You see, Jesus reigns and Jesus saves from death. And then the last quote in verse 8, the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It comes from Isaiah chapter 8. And what Peter wants us to know and what Isaiah is trying to tell the people of his day is there's nowhere else to turn. Nowhere else. Jesus, the stone, the living stone, is the dividing line of history. Either you receive him now and build him on him as the foundation of your life, or then when that time comes of your death or his return, you will face devastation. You reject him to your ruin. He is Lord. So Jesus reigns, Jesus saves. Jesus is Lord. You know, it dawned on me this week, how many of you have been to Washington, D.C. and spent any amount of time there? Yeah, a good number of us. Wouldn't you agree with me that of all the American cities per square inch or square mile, Washington, D.C. has the most stone and bronze of any city? And rightly so. I mean, our history's there. It's the center of America. But it was not lost on me this week just even seeing those images of the Capitol building and the statues and and the gleaming halls. That it will not be the gleaming halls of the Capitol nor the white marble statues that still our heart and save our lives. Only Jesus is the living stone. And it's the living stone this living stone, this power that puts us on mission. And what is that mission? Back to verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, 
Here's the mission. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the living stone, is building a new, unique spiritual house where people can come and meet God and experience Him. And He's building it out of human lives who have been renewed and now flood the world with His presence. Living stone building a new house out of living stones. Now, I want to unpack that metaphor, the living stones, and define that. And these, these are the words that are in our mission statement, just to help you mull on that this week, what these words mean. Uh, these definitions, people, empowered, presence of Jesus Christ. The first thing that living stones are, are, are people. People. Now, it's just rather amazing, right? The partnership invitation of God. I want to remind us of something that's hugely important, and that's this, that you and I in this time are the physical presence of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, Jesus has his human body resurrected and fully glorious sitting at the right hand of the throne in heaven. But right now on earth, you and I are the embodiment of his hands and his feet his ears and his mouth. When we commission our Stephen ministers, these people who walk with people in our church who are in crisis, we read this prayer with them, St. Teresa of Avila's prayer. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. We are the physical presence of Jesus on his planet. And everybody fits. The word that Peter uses to talk about the people of God, he's, verse 9, he says, once you were not a people and now you are the people of God, it's the word laos, which means like everybody. It's all backgrounds, all sizes, all shapes, all, all who come to Jesus. Everybody fits. It's not one size fits all. It's that all sizes are fitted into the one. Christ's body. Everybody fits. I came across the story. It's actually from the book you'll be reading in small groups, The Beautiful Resistance. Uh, John Tyson tells a story that Philip Yancey, the Colorado writer who lives up in Evergreen, tells the story of uh, going to a uh, leper rehabilitation center in Nepal. And he walks in with his wife, Janet, and they are greeted by the director of the hospital, but also uh, a, a woman who comes to greet him, and, and Yancey describes the woman this way, that no hands, no feet, just stubs for limbs. And she's dragging herself along the floor to, to come and greet them. And Philip, Yancey, looks into her face and immediately sees that she has no nose. Her nose is gone, and there's just a hole where you can see into her sinus cavity. And... Um, Philip Yancey's first response, as probably I know mine would be, and perhaps yours, is 
great. I mean, we're going to take this tour, but here's a beggar that's come to, you know, ask for some help. Yancey describes that this way. He says, yes, I'm ashamed. My first thought was she's a beggar and she wants money. My wife, who has worked among the down and out, had a more holy reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down to the woman and put her arm around her. And the old woman rested her head against Janet's shoulder and began singing a song in Nepali, a tune we all instantly recognized. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don Maya is one of our most devoted church members, the physical therapist later told us. Most of our patients are Hindu, but we have a little Christian chapel here, and Don Maya comes every time the door opens. She's a prayer warrior. She loves to greet and welcome every visitor who comes to Green Pastures, and no doubt she heard us talking as we walked along the corridor. In an instant, Yancey realized his prejudice had blocked his access to the presence of God in this woman. This experience, Yancey says, reframed his whole understanding of the church as God's people in this world. Yancey continued, a few months later, we heard that Don Maya had died. Close to my desk, I keep a photo that I snapped just as she was singing to Janet. I see two beautiful women, my wife, smiling sweetly, wearing a brightly colored Nepali outfit that she had bought the day before, holding in her arms an old crone who would flunk any beauty test ever despised except the one that matters most. Out of that deformed, hollow shell of a body, the light of God's presence shines out. The Holy Spirit found a home a people where God's Spirit dwells. That's who we are. That's our mission, to flood the world with His presence. We are a, we are a people who are empowered. The idea of empowered is living stones, right? We once were dead, Ephesians 2 says, in our trespasses and sins. We wanted nothing to do with God. We didn't know anything about Him. We didn't know what it was like to be in relationship. We were separated from Him until God, by His Spirit, navigated all the circumstances of our lives and finally brought us to a point in time, some moment. We may remember it, or for many of us it was more of a process, but that, that realization came that Jesus, He's Lord, He's King. And at that moment, we gave our life to him. And guess what? He moved into our life. It started extreme makeover, right? His Holy Spirit came to live in us. And what does that mean? It means a ton. And this is how we all experience being God's temple, where the Holy Spirit lives. First of all, it means things like the Holy Spirit pours the Father's love. How do you know you're a Christian? You just have this sense that God's love is for you all the time. This, the text says that the Spirit pours the Father's love into our hearts so that we cry out, Dad, Abba, Father. We have a Father. We're children of God. That's our primary identity. That begins to take root in us. And then the Spirit, 1 John chapter 2 says that we have an anointing from the Spirit so that we can understand His Word. This Word, this book becomes more than a book, right? 
It's not that we understand everything. It's not that it's easy to read. But we understand that it's not just a book. It's a voice of our Father talking to us. It's different than any other book we read. It's relationship, this book. And we understand the cross, that every time we gather and we sit under the cross, we realize again and again that God has forgiven our sins, separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. We don't come back here for more mercy every week. We come back here for justice, to remember that Jesus died from our sins, and they have no, for our sins, they have no power over us. Week after week, we're reminded of the cross. And the Spirit begins to plant the Jesus lifestyle in us, right? We begin this total transformation from a very self-centered way of living to an other-centered way of living. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, all of those are relational words. And the Spirit is teaching us that the value of life, the meaning of life, is to give it away and to live from weakness. And from that weakness, strength. And it's the Spirit in us that begins to teach us how to love other people and to tear down barriers between male and female and between ethnic backgrounds and between socioeconomic status. The Spirit is tearing down those walls so that we move towards each other in love and forgiveness, even our enemies. You see, the Holy Spirit is making us who are dead living stones where His presence dwells. We are a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ. The idea of presence is in the Old Testament and New Testament, the idea of face. Hasn't it been hard during the pandemic to wear these masks? Not just for, you know, our own personal inconvenience and breathing and stinking and all all that, but hasn't it been even more challenging to have conversations with people, to sometimes hear them, but even more to see their whole face. It's been like nagging when you can't see a person's face. Why? Because their face is their countenance. It's what they're feeling. I mean, what is the like 80-some percent of all communication is body language, and most of that resides in the face. That's been hard. What we see when we have the presence of Jesus is the face of God in His face. And we have now that ability to see God. That's been God's intent all along. Here's a brief history of the presence of God through Scripture, the witness of God. In Matthew 28, we see that Jesus said, the last thing He says to us before He leaves, "Um, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He promises us His presence, and then He launches the church. But that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where we see that God's, one of His favorite things that seemed He looked forward to every day with humanity, with Adam and Eve, was to go for a walk in the cool of the day. Can I just say something to you, just as a real practical pastoral matter? That most days of your life, especially the hard ones, God just wants to go for a walk with you. He just wants to go for a walk with you. Adam and Eve said, that's not enough. It's not good enough. And they turned their back on it. And we turned our back on Him. 
But God did not stop pursuing us. And it's just amazing to go through Scripture and see again and again the pursuit of God. Jacob, for instance. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From Jacob come the 12 tribes of Israel. Each time God renews his promise to that he made to Abraham that you'll have descendants and land and you will become the joy for all nations who can come to you and find God. He renewed it to Isaac. He renewed it to Jacob. But what's interesting is he renewed it to Jacob on the worst day of Jacob's life. Jacob, the deceiver, he was a scoundrel. He stole the birthright from his older brother Esau so that he could get all the privileges of being firstborn. And Esau was livid and wanted to kill him. And even Jacob's mother said, yeah, you better get out of here. And Jacob takes off running. And I'm guessing it was the first night he ever spent outside his own home. Imagine. The text says that Jacob does not pray to God, but that God comes to Jacob. And he gives him a vision. Maybe you've heard about it. This vision of angels ascending and descending up a staircase. And it's really Mesopotamian culture there that God is wanting to connect to because that's how they viewed God, that he was, they would build these artificial mountains called ziggurats. And at the top, they said, that's where the gods live. And they'd build these spiral staircases up out of stones. And if you were strong enough and good enough and you could make your way to the top, well, maybe you'd meet God at the top of the mountain. What's interesting in the Hebrew text is that it says there's God standing next to Jacob at the bottom of the staircase. The Christian God, the Jewish God, is the God who comes down to be with us. You see it again in Exodus 33, after they're uh, on the journey to the promised land. Moses is having a conversation with God. Sometimes God just wants to go for a walk with you. And Moses says, Lord, you know, what's going to distinguish us from all the other people, all the other nations on the earth? And Moses begins to answer his own questions. He says, it's not going to be the dietary laws. It's not going to be circumcision. It's not going to be the festivals and the Sabbaths. Do you know what it's going to be? What makes you different than all other nations in the world? It's going to be the presence. Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. It's the presence of God that distinguishes his people from all other people in the face of the earth. That's what got Jesus in trouble, right? He came, John 2, one of the first things he does is he goes into the temple and he flips over tables. I mean, our security team would have run Jesus out of the church building. He was, he was a wild man, and he's making a point in act and in word. He's saying to them, look, the presence has left Israel like 500 years ago in Ezekiel 10 when it left the temple, and all that you have now is a religious system that's dry and empty of presence. It's just ritual. It's dead religion, and Jesus said, and this was Herod's beautiful temple, one of the most beautiful buildings in the world at the time. I will tear this building down in three days and rebuild it. And on his crucifixion, the veil of the temple was torn in two to symbolize that. That now, no longer do we come to meet God in a place or in a building. But now, 
It's in a person, Jesus Christ. And in that person, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He sent His Holy Spirit down so that now the presence of God, and people experience it, through His people. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, I think, is one of the most astounding verses in human history. Consequently, you, church, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And get this, be astounded. In Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. Until that time in Revelation 22 when everything ends, when we can see God face to face, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Now what does all this mean? It means that we are to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Three, three things quickly. One, that drastically impacts how we do worship, right? When we gather all of us together, it's fuel for the mission. Worship is the fuel for this mission. R- wrote some things down this morning. I, I wanna be very accurate here. Worship's the fuel of mission. Pursuing the presence of Christ, that is, seeking God in the face of Jesus in the Spirit-drenched corporate worship, is who we are. So here's what that means. Worship is not for entertainment, so you get your groove for the week. Worship is not psychology, so that you leave feeling better. Worship is not even Primarily education so that you grow, though we hope that happens. Worship is an encounter with the King of Kings where you are again stunned by His beauty and His glory. And you leave saying, I have to change and I have to tell someone about this. When I was preparing and really pondering all this mission statement stuff last fall, I went to the Jesuit Retreat Center, Sacred Heart, down in Sedalia and just spent a couple of days and nights alone with the Lord. One of the things I did was I read the book of Acts about four times. I just wanted to get a, you know, a sense of the vintage church. One of the things that jumped out to me again about the book of Acts is this. 28 chapters, there's 32 speeches about Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. 32 The vintage church could not not talk about Jesus Christ. They were enthralled. He became their boast. His beauty captivated their hearts more than anything else, and they could not not talk about him. One of the things worship has to be at Waterstone, if it's anything, is a time for us to contemplate who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we will stay anchored to the scripture. We will create space in our services just for contemplation and prayer. We will hold Jesus at the center 
of everything we do. The other thing I would say about that is prayer. I would confess to you as a leader in the last two years, the primary leader of this church, that we have not prayed enough. That we need more prayer. That prayer needs to be one of our primary responses to the beauty and stunning power of Jesus Christ. So we're taking steps. We're going to do a preaching series on prayer this year, just eight weeks exclusively drilled down to prayer. Elliot Campbell is leading our staff and at some point our elders through this prayer course called How to Pray. And we're going to drill down on the Lord's Prayer deeper and deeper. I was reminded of this and really actually happened during this time I was at Sacred Heart. We got an email from one of our missionaries, Nathan uh, Kendall, down in Guinea. And he's just finished his doctoral thesis on uh, understanding why some churches in Guinea are very effective at reaching Muslims. Do you know what his thesis concluded? Two things. One, that the world is watching them, especially Muslims, and they're attracted to the Christian lifestyle and the way that Christians handle sex, power, and money. It's godliness. But do you know the other thing? Those churches that are having the most effect in reaching Muslims with the love of Jesus are churches who pray. Not just perfunctory prayers like for dinner and in church, but in, there are churches in Guinea where they can't dismiss the services because the people are praying too long. Where in these churches, they have, they have invited God to wake them up at night for people and situations in their congregation to pray for them. And there's stories being told of wives waking up their husbands to pray and husbands waking up their children and all of them getting together in the middle of the night because God woke them up to pray. Can you imagine? Can we say, come Holy Spirit, come? Worship. And the last thing I'll say, I'm Peter says, offer your spiritual sacrifices. Declare the praises of God. It's worship is the fuel of the mission. Do you know what the other fuel of the mission is and what we're going to drill, double down and keep drilling down is small groups. Peter says we are a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, priests, you know, their function was to connect people to God's presence and power. And so a person wanting to be thankful would bring an offering and the priest would offer it in behalf of of them to God. And they wanted to confess their sins and they'd bring an offering and the priest would connect them to God and they'd want guidance and counsel and the priest would say, let me talk to God and I'll get back to you. Well, that priesthood is no more because Jesus has called you and I to be priests, one to the other. And we do that primarily in a larger church like Waterstone through small groups, small groups, men's groups, women's groups, friends' groups, all young marriage groups, singles groups, all kinds of groups, groups, groups. We're always getting around each other because why? We need counsel, so let's gather around. We need to confess our sins. Let's gather. We need uh, input. Let's gather around. Part of the mission is being connected to other believers in the priesthood. So I want to end with two Reflection questions, we'll give like 10, 15 seconds each. 
And then we're going to sing a song to take this to our hearts. Do you give people the impression that the most amazing thing in the world is to have the Spirit of God living in you, pouring the Father's love into your heart? And second, do you understand that the proof of Christianity is not an argument, but a life? Christ in you, the hope of glory.